This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And the last time, it is the last time the squad will convene before next Monday's election. So, what are the parties offering the Zoomer demographic? Well, my take? Really not much. I actually think that they are all assuming that older Canadians will not vote in their usual numbers because of the pandemic. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. So now let's see what the squad says. I'd like to welcome David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and guesting today, John Wright, Executive Vice President of the Maru Public Opinion. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Uh, let us begin with John. So first question Is the ballot question about policy for Zoomers, or is the ballot question Justin Trudeau? Well, the the ballot question is shaped by the parties, and right now it really has nothing to do with policy. Uh, What we're seeing and hearing in the last 10 days of this campaign is an attack on either the NDP or the Conservatives from the Liberals on a series of issues like gun control, abortion, um, environment, and things like that so that Mr. Trudeau can bring back those liberals that deserted him when the election got underway. So you're absolutely right. The way you summed it up at the very beginning, there really isn't anything on the um, on the plate for people who are older. And secondly, um, the COVID situation may cause some uh, barriers to those people going out to vote, um, both in terms of concerns about COVID, but also in the fact that we have lost a number of opportunities to have polling booths in different regions. So I think that kind of sums up where we are. David, what do you think? Will Zoomers vote based on the policies they see in front of them, or are they voting? Is this a leadership question? Well, well, I, I think it's, it's more, uh, I said last week, it's a vibe election. I think it's just their overall feelings about the leaders. There's not that much to choose because I think all parties have perfected the art of looking at the seniors and seeing how many boxes can we check off. I don't really remember uh, an election where there was any big policy or ideological uh, division um, among the parties where it came to the so-called seniors vote. It's just hand out the goodies and and check the boxes. And uh, it's how do you feel about um, the leaders? And I think it is an old axiom that uh, governments aren't elected, they're defeated. And I think this election is really a referendum on Trudeau more than on uh, some big policy breakthrough that's going to change things for Zoomers. Peter? Yeah, I agree. There's been very little talk of, um, you know, a policy that's going to shift the older Canadians' vote or even interest it, you know. So 
So I think David's right. It, it, it's it's a referendum on on the job Trudeau did during um, during the pandemic, and whether we want to give him uh, free reign to go forward and and keep and uh, plan the recovery. Mm-hmm. There was, especially at the beginning, a lot of anger against. Trudeau. The consensus was that he didn't really do very well in the debate, but but John, we're seeing his polling numbers recovering now. Well, what's that about? Well, you're right. There still is a lot of anger across the country in terms of actually having an election during this time. Um, and and the, the numbers are up a little bit. And I always look at the methodologies of the polls and just for your, lead, your listeners, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways you do polls. Most of the ones that we're looking at now are rolled up results where they kind of do the polling over the last three or four nights and they kind of roll them up and give us the results today so it averages out. But what it's showing is that there was a bump last week for the Liberals. I don't know whether that's going to sustain for the last week, um, but certainly we only need to elect a fraction. Um, we only need to have a fraction of the voters elect uh, a government in this country. It comes to about 37%. But we're seeing the Liberals at around 33 or so right now. So they're far from obtaining a majority. And the other ones are still in the hunt for, you know, forming potentially a a minority government. David, so what I've seen anyway is a fair amount of anger against Justin Trudeau. uh, But do you think what's happening now is that people are looking at the fine print and uh, they're saying, so this other guy, he, he seems fine. He doesn't come across as somebody angry or scary, but what is he actually giving us? Well, I think that's, that's partly true, but I also think for the first time that, uh, and I agree with what John said about some of the methodologies that it's such a horse race and it's so close that uh, I'm not sure that a national number uh, is really telling us the story. I note that uh, in two of the polls, the, the slippage in the Conservatives was at the hands of the um, People's Party, and mainly in the province of Alberta. So on a national level, you could say, oh my gosh, Bernier's gone up from 6% to 9%, mainly in Alberta, and that came at the expense of the Conservatives, which each into their total nationally. But if there's any place in Canada where the Conservatives can give away three or four points and not lose one seat different, it would be in Alberta. So they may have some efficiencies in their vote for the first time ever. So I think it's a horse race. I don't think um, there's been any big momentum in, in any particular direction. And, you know, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book comes out on Thursday, and maybe that'll change it all over again. I, I really don't know. It seems very close right Well, well that that came out, uh, the excerpt was, was yeah, published on the weekend, and yeah. that was a question on the campaign trail. But uh, yeah. I guess the question is whether it has legs, Peter. Or it does remind people of, I think that was the biggest scandal in their government, but it was uh, one of quite a few. Yeah, and and it's got it's got a bit of a he said she said vibe to it, where you know um, Raybould's interpretation was that he wanted her to lie, and Trudeau was saying no, I, that that wasn't the interpretation. So, um, and 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 it it kind of smacks of a bit of a the, the timing of the book smacks of a revenge against Trudeau. So, I, I think people will take those two things under consideration, but. Um, whether it damages the campaign, the liberal campaign, I, I have my doubts. Like this is this is fairly, um, you know, high level stuff that that people who you know are concerned about their, you know, their jobs or their, um, 
you know, their health, they're, they're not going to let this um, bog down the issue. Let's talk about long-term care. And of course, uh, we've covered that issue hugely. It's a big concern for CARP. The magazine had a huge takeout on it. Uh, I've got to say that personally, I just feel a huge sense of disappointment. My feeling is, you know, when when after the, the first two waves, I thought, well, at least this this will be a big issue and it'll be fixed. But I don't think so anymore, David. I think you're right. I don't think it'll be fixed. And I think it any more than health care will be fixed, because I think all of the parties, especially during an election, when you tend to be pretty risk averse, they have figured out what to say and what not to say. Nobody's going to come out and say we're in favor of bad long-term care, we're in favor of no standards, we're in favor of inadequate planning. So they've all got the right word salads, and they've honed and perfected those word salads so that they all sound uh, very earnest and involved and concerned. But they're really just all tap dancing around uh, the issue. There is no national standard. You're leaving it up to the provinces. Do you want to override them? Can you override them? Um how does that play in Quebec, where it would seem to be a bigger, you know, ideological or policy issue than anywhere else? So what you come up with is the right verbiage, and it's not that tough to find the right verbiage to profess your your concern and your 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 moral concern and so on. You say they all know how to say the right thing. Seniors are an easy uh, audience to say the right things for, and uh, long-term care is an easy topic to talk about in a sympathetic way and not an easy topic to actually cut through all the mess and do anything. John Wright, what have you found in terms of the importance of that issue in people's minds? Well, when we first started into the campaign, we did some polling on about 23 different issues and asked people to pick the top two or three that mattered the most of them going into it. Uh, Long-term care as a specific issue, was way down the list. What was near the top or at the top was affordability, followed then by the environment, followed then by jobs in the economy, and then the deficit, and then it kind of went from there. I think the biggest issue that we have on that, on that particular matter of long-term care or seniors' issues, is that they tend to be the provincial jurisdictions. And what you end up with is a competition among federal leaders in terms of how much money they're going to give to the provinces. I mean, they can't you know, they can say all they want that they're going to have more nurses or doctors in certain areas or that they want long-term care uh, better outside of having national standards that they'd have to negotiate with the provinces, I suppose. It just becomes a money thing of either, you know, sending seniors a check as they did before the election or handing money to the provinces and saying, you do with it what you think is the best way of doing it. So it's hard to have a national debate uh, about so many things when they're regionally implemented, um, and and it really isn't something that's uh, that's been high in the um, in the debates at all. Okay, well let us. Well, I you know frankly, part of that is you know it it was whoever organized the debates decided to put it way down on the agenda. Wasn't us, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, look, no, no question. There's, there's always things that, uh, that should be in debates and they only have so much time and they didn't cover issues that I thought were important. But the issue is that the, the leaders themselves in terms of a platform, in terms of what they're going to focus on, in terms of what they're going to advertise. And 
you know, what we're seeing right now is a bit of a knife fight in, you know, constituencies, the 905, the lower uh, mainland in British Columbia, parts of Quebec, uh, where where it really matters that those local issues and the candidates are front and center, that's where the traction is had. So I would I would agree with you. This election has not really had any focus on seniors, except one could say that affordability has probably hit most of the people across this country in that age range, of which I'm one now. Um, <laughs> yeah, just just this past month. Uh, but the reality Happy birthday. is birthday hasn't. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, it does say something when you get that first notice from the government saying you got to make some decisions on your own finances. It certainly has a strike of mortality. But to that point, (laughs) the issues that now have an interest to me are not being debated at all across the country. Um, And I think that that's something which, you know, someone like me has to investigate before I make that decision at the ballot box. Let's take a call from Sharon in London. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, I can just barely hear you, but it must, must be a bad line. I just wanted to call and say that um, I felt there should definitely not have been an election at all. There was no need for this. It's spending a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of resources away from what should be um, front and center in this election. Which is? Well, the pandemic and the situation with Afghanistan and the health situation and the seniors' homes. There are so many things like that that, that need some help. And I know that, that health is, is a provincial issue, but I really think that, that there should be some national standards. <laughs> and uh, some of the policies of the, of the government, for example, giving $500 to seniors who are over 75 and totally leaving out those 65 to 74, um, I think it should have been across the board, but to those who needed it. Um, Sharon, are you going to get out and vote? Well, I was just going to say that my husband and I made sure we got out and voted early. Good. So we wanted to make sure that we got our vote in, so we have done it. Glad to hear that. Sharon, thank you very much for your call. Oh, you're welcome. And, uh, you know, Sharon brought up something interesting, and that's that $500 that, that people... 75 and over got like two days before the election was called. It it had actually been promised before the last election in 2019. And and a lot of people were just fed up. They like feel like, how dumb do you think we are, David? Well, they they obviously think we're very dumb. I mean, (laughs) the question answers itself because they recycled an old uh, promise. But it, it, again, it speaks to the the shallowness with which they're all dealing with the whole topic, because first of all, there's the issue of um, age versus need. Why, why does your, why do you automatically need this at 75 and not at 74? Um, and that's number one. But number two, if you're going to get into the world of need, people who need it most, uh, why don't you do something about the old low income cutoff, which is like 20 years out of date? So what they call poverty, uh, there's probably twice as many seniors living in poverty uh, as are captured by the low-income cutoff. So, again, there's this lack of seriousness. And maybe you could argue an election is not the time that anybody's getting serious. Oh, remember all, Kim Campbell know. saying that? She got hammered for that. Well, it's, it's just, there's a lack of seriousness about the whole topic. 
And it's just, you know, here's my list, and I've got 86 pages if I'm Aaron O'Toole or yeah. whatever it is. And check, 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 check. Oh, we've got that group. Okay, throw them something here. And we go to that group, throw something here. And then I stand up in a debate and said, I've done this, this, and this. And nobody's very happy. So, again, it circles back to the leader and the vibe that that leader is projecting. And how do you feel about them? And uh, we are where we are, I'm afraid. And uh, so do you have an idea of where where should the low-income cutoff be? Double what it is now. Is it? Do you think 19,000 is the real poverty line? I I have no idea. a single person? No, that's what the low-income is. I know. Good luck on that. Good luck on 38,000. So it's, it's, you know, and it says low income. It doesn't say like rank poverty, sleeping in the street, homeless poverty. But low income today is way more than 19,000. So they have not really, if you're serious about seniors' poverty, if you're serious about long term care, if you're serious about improving the health care system, you wouldn't be dismissing all these things with a couple of sentences of, uh, not fine-sounding verbiage, and all of the parties are content with the fine-sounding verbiage, I'm afraid. Okay, let's hear from Carolyn in Halliburton. Hello, Carolyn. Yes, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to comment on your comments about um, whether or not seniors are getting out to vote. Uh, I'm a senior. I'm 74. I have already voted, and in fact, Good. my husband and I are volunteering to work at the polls on Monday. All our friends that uh, in our age group are definitely voting. Um, the fact that they can now vote by mail um, is, has also made a big difference. And, of course, the advanced poll. Um, the, the issue, I think, for most of us has become leadership. Um, a lot of the parties make lots of promises. But um, I just look back at the Liberals and Mr. Trudeau. I look at the ethics convictions, the Lavalon and the Wee scandals, the broken promises on the Indigenous peoples that have been in the works for years, but very little has happened. COVID itself is an issue. We were late with our vaccines. I know he's thrown money at us since, but that to me was unacceptable. I look at what's happened in Afghanistan. Uh, Again, too little, too late and not enough. Long-term care, that's uh, something that's going to haunt us for a very long time. And I think by passing things down to the provincial level, they sort of use that as a scapegoat, and things are just not happening as as they should. Inaction on the recommendations that have been made, and it's just it's pitiful. The yeah. two Michaels, again, not enough. Carolyn? They could be doing... Yes. Yes. So no, I I I, I thought you were uh, wrapping up there. Uh, very well. I very, I just, I very just well said. Make very uh, the tax equity on our principal residences is the main thing that made up my mind. If the Liberals are going to tax our equity, that's our savings, that's our retirement, and I will not support anyone who proposes that. Well, I, so I it's time for a change. Yeah, there's 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 a big question about whether there's actually going to do that. I, I can't imagine. But Carolyn, thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, I, I just want to clarify something. I didn't say that I think people in the older demographic won't vote. I said I think the parties think they won't vote. And that had something to do with the 
com- almost complete lack of uh, lack of attention to a demographic that traditionally votes in overwhelming numbers. Uh, John, again, what what do you think of that? Well, I, I agree that it's you know each election has its own dynamic, um, and I hate to be sounding so rational about all of this, but it's an area that. Well, voters themselves go out to um, uh, in greater numbers, and, and I, I'm going to be interested to see what they are because they are the ones who give the ballot bonus to lots of uh, different issues out there. I, I don't know how the government uh, in this particular election with no uh, plank or issue to trigger this election could suddenly focus in on something that matters to everybody. I mean, as you've noted, and others have, They've coddled together some kind of a ballot question based on an ante of everything that, you know, Mr. O'Toole stands for. And they're doing the same now um, to Jagmeet Singh so they can bring back those soft liberals who have gone in that direction. So the liberals called the election. They didn't call for any particular reason. They've coddled together an agenda which has nothing really to speak of uh, other than doing more of what they've done. Um, and that's at the cost of everybody else who really wanted to have something in an election campaign when it was called to cater to the issues of the people of the country. So I, I don't know how you can change it, but except that when elections are called, uh, people should note, you know, what the interests are in them as voters. And if it's not in their interest, they should vote otherwise. Peter, uh, yeah. we, we heard from Carolyn and it was very interesting. And for her, it's about leadership and in terms of the audience of the magazine do you think that is true for most of them yeah that that's what we're hearing and and uh while carolyn's right that um trudeau has many questions about his leadership uh i i wonder if o'toole was able to in those in in that debate um establish himself as a uh, as a leader as a one that that voters can put confidence in because in the, in Harper's first debate, his whole goal was to make him seem like a leader, make him appear to Canadians that he had the uh, chops to be the leader, and he did a good job, and and, and Canadians voted for him. But I, O'Toole really didn't have enough time in that debate, other than to sort of smile and uh, you know uh, follow his his speaking points, and um, I'm not sure whether he he is he established his credentials as a leader. So so that that's the question. I mean, people may be upset with Trudeau's uh, leadership over the last six years, but are they willing to, you know, turn the, uh, hand the keys over to someone who hasn't been proven at all, like O'Toole? Mm-hmm. And, and that, well, he was that a cabinet the minister. People face as they walk up to the ballot. Box. Yeah, he, he was a cabinet minister uh, under Harper. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, yeah. I, I also want to talk about a strategic voting, what kind of a role do you think that will play, David? I mean, it was interesting. So we have on the left, we have the the liberals trying to say, don't vote for Jagmeet Singh because that'll just help the conservatives. And on the far right, or what's considered the far right, uh, Canada Proud said, boy, don't, don't vote for the People's Party because you'll help the liberals. I don't think, I, I don't think it's decisive, but uh, especially when you consider the the number of seniors we talked a moment and, and, and Carolyn talked about getting out to vote. Just want to remind the audience that we've at, at Zoomer and at CARP, we've analyzed past elections. Elections Canada produces a report some months after the election 
on the, the, the distribution of votes by age group, among other things. And in the last four, ele- four elections, including the most recent one, the Trudeau one, the 50-plus vote accounted for six out of every 10 ballots that were actually cast. So that takes into account the large population in that age group, plus the higher turnout rate. And in the Trudeau election that he won, the so-called youth vote had its best showing in the past five elections. So they came out in a flood, but nevertheless, the uh, older, if you will, vote, six out of every 10 ballots. And if that happens this time around, uh, I don't think it's good news for the incumbent. And I didn't say the liberals, I said the incumbent, because I think generally um, the opposition to the incumbent is a little got a little bit more fire in their belly than the incumbent, especially in an election like this, where there isn't really a clear-cut, uh, urgent issue that would drive you into the arms of the incumbent. So I don't think that the... There's a, every poll I've seen says there's about 8 to 10% of the people still undecided. That's enough to swing it. And I think people, especially the, uh, the older so-called age group, they're going to vote for who they want. I don't think they're going to vote for who they don't want in order to get rid of somebody even worse, in my opinion. John Wright, do you think that more people from a younger demographic will get out this time? I mean, the leaders are all, they're all talking about housing affordability, which of course is uh, not, it's not an issue for uh, boomers, Zoomers. Um, do, do you think that that will bring younger people out to vote? Well, it depends on how we define younger people. Uh, my, uh, Everybody's my younger parents- than us. Yeah, well, you know what? My youngest turns 19 tomorrow, so he's all excited about this, and he's in Halifax going to university there. But his view is also that there aren't any ballot boxes on universities, and there's nothing in the colleges. They're going to have to find a place to go and make sure that they're registered and actually vote. And I think this is something which is a different dynamic than it was in the previous two elections, where University and college students had easy pickings as to where they would go and vote, and they did so in great numbers for Mr. Trudeau. So I don't discount that that may cause a problem this time for that you know really young vote to go out. But the other part of this is even when you look at people who are aged 18 to 34 and even 24 to 34, these are middle-aged people, oftentimes with kids and families and concerns about affordability. Those are the people right now to which... Um, you know, they, they have to make their decision as to which party itself is going to deliver them the best way through the next couple of years, especially on the backs of COVID, to make sure that their families are safe and protected and that we, you know, their jobs are going to be worthwhile and, you know, their communities are going to thrive. So, you know, I, when I look at it and I say youth, I think that there may not be the same, you know, undercurrent of very young voters going out this time, but I think, you know, middle-aged people with families in urban and suburban areas, I think they're going to show up. And I think what's foremost on their mind uh, is affordability. And that's going to uh, speak to either Mr. O'Toole or the NDP, who have banged the drum, both of them, since the first day the writ was drawn up. Okay. Um, we are starting to run out of time. I'm just going to take a couple of calls. Ruth in Toronto. Thank you very much, Libby. Uh, I appreciate it. I listened to your radio show every single day. Thank you. Thank you for being on. My comments are in response to the lady that was on previously. I think people are forgetting 
that between the liberals and the conservatives, there's quite a big difference. And we forget that the conservatives, when they came into power, took away a lot of money in all the different areas that we require, whether it was education, whether it was health, wherever the need was. And, my God, what happened with the retirement homes and the long-term homes? Are people so, you know, not aware what happened to the people who passed away? And the liberals who did step up to the plate and did present provide money to people who were out of jobs and who needed help with monies that would keep them in, in, in their home or in their apartment and put food on the table. They're forgetting all those things that that man did and his government. And I'm referring to both the liberal government and the conservative government that didn't do it. Okay, thank and, you. You know, we have to remember these things. And the $500, if I may, I am a senior and I did vote, and I did vote liberal. And uh, I will say that the $500 is helping me a great deal. Some people may not need it. Donate it, please, God, donate it if you feel the need. But people like myself are appreciative, and people 65 to 74 are still working because sometimes they need to, sometimes they want to, but there's a big difference in this city and in Ontario. Okay, thank you very much, Ruth. Okay, we're basically out of time, so I'm going to give each of you 20 seconds, starting with Peter. Yeah, well, if those two callers are any indication, it sounds like the older voters will get out and vote, and that's great news for uh, for democracy and for um, you know the, the charting our path going forward. That the older voters will have a say in it. John, polls are so close that uh, older voters <clears throat> will make a huge difference if they get out and vote, um, because we know other sections of society have barriers or just are not going to be that enthusiastic. So. If anything, they have a real chance to make an impact on this campaign, and I hope they all go out and vote. David? I agree with uh, John and Peter. It's up to us to get out and vote. Um, The test will be whoever the winner is. um, Are they going to say thank you on with the rest of our agenda? Are they going to pay any attention? And are these votes being taken for granted? Part of that story will be told at the election, and part of it after the election when I think the real work begins. Okay, you know, the next time uh, the Zoomer squad convenes, it'll be election day. So, guys, thank you very much. Talk soon. And everybody, please get out and vote. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Uh, We're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, there's a whole new variant out there. It's called Moo. We'll talk about what it is and what we have to watch out for when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As if we aren't having enough problems with the Delta variant, there is now a new one to worry about. It's called the Mu variant, and it originated in South America, I'm going to give the numbers out if you have questions. The numbers 416 360 toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly. Hi, Dr. Sly. Hello, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. So what can you tell us about the Mu variant? 
Well, its uh, proper name is B1621, but of course it's more easy to uh, have mu uh, drip off your tongue. Um, it seems not to spread uh, rapidly or remarkably rapidly. I don't think she's going to take over anything. It started, as you said at the top, in South America, particularly Colombia. Something like 39% of the isolations there are for this particular type. And Ecuador, just over the borders, I think it's about 13%. But that's where it began. It was first identified. Of course, these things are always identified where there's a lot of viral replication going on. Uh, and it, it's, it is spreading. I believe it's in something like 39 different countries now, uh, but it takes up something like about 1%, I have less than 1% of the cases uh, uh, identified in Canada. Mm-hmm, but it is here. It's here, but I really don't... We need to keep an eye on it, and the virologists are doing that at the moment, but I don't think we need to get too worried about it at the moment. The one, the one uh, problem with it is it seems to be more able to escape the antibodies, both in convalescent people who had the infection and from people who have been vaccinated, a little bit more than the other variants. What do you mean by that? Well, it means that the the antibodies, which is the your protection, either through having had the infection and convalescent, your antibodies you produce yourself, or the antibodies given to you by uh, produced stimulated by a vaccine. Either way, um, uh, that's your protection. And this this particular variant seems a little more able to resist. Those antibodies, but it doesn't seem to be able to spread as rapidly as the others, as far as we know at the moment, and that's good news, because what we're really afraid of is the ones that is the uh, is the spread. That's what gave Delta the the dominance over all the other variants. It just spread around the world because it could spread so rapidly from person to person, and in fact, if a variant becomes more pathogenic, of course, it's not good news for the individual patient. But it doesn't mean to say it's going to spread more rapidly throughout the country or throughout the globe. Now, first of all, is it mu or mu? It's a Greek. It's the Greek letter. So okay. everybody's got a different pronunciation for the uh, for the old Greek letters. I pronounce it uh, mu and new, but there are you know there's variation in how you pronounce it. Uh- my understanding is that it, it's, it's the Greek letter, but, but it, it also stands for mutation and, uh, that it has, it's, it's more mutated than the other ones. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, all of these variants have got, uh, you know, half a dozen, sometimes eight or nine different, uh, uh, mutations in their, in their genome. I don't, I haven't heard the mu stands for mutation. I mean, it's just the next one in line. I think we've had 19 so far variants altogether. The Greek alphabet's only got 24 letters in it. And so they're making plans now what to go on after the Greek letter is exhausted, as it will be pretty soon. No, I, I, it's just, just the next one in line. Uh, after Gamma and Delta and Kappa and so on. So anyway, back to the particular thing here. It is, um, uh, it, it, Columbia was, was really the hotbed of, uh, during March to August, they had something like 30, more than 30,000 cases a day in June. And this is exactly where variants will come from. Uh, but so far, uh, it, 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 we, it, it's going to be attacking, like almost other variants, uh, the unvaccinated, uh, this seems to be, but we don't know. There's very little evidence at the moment, Libby, in Canada, because you've got less than 1% of isolations is this particular one, and it shows no signs of suddenly increasing or suddenly taking over from Delta. Uh, 
I've read that it is, uh, and I think you just explained it a different way, that it, it, um, the vaccines don't work as well with it, though. Yeah, it, it, there's been some tests on this. Uh, there's a couple of papers in, in Nature Journal just in the last uh, couple of weeks, one by Collier and another by Wong, uh, which showed that it doesn't respond as, uh, as effectively to the antibodies as the previous variants do. It doesn't mean to say the vaccines are totally useless. It just means that they don't. You remember, you remember when, when, they, when the Alpha and Delta came along, we said that, well, now we have to look at the effectiveness of the vaccine slightly less. You know, it's where it was 94%, it was now about 88% effective. Do you remember we, we saw yeah. that back a number of months ago? Well, this, once, once we got some more data coming in and we got a number of people to test this on, find out that that's probably going to be dropped a little more. But the vaccines will probably still work, but not as effectively as before. But as I said, that's not the, that's not what's, what makes a variant spread. What makes it spread is that if efficacy of, of uh, getting into your body and moving into your cells and then coming out again and doing the same thing again. And uh, just to be more, more pathogenic means that a person is becoming more ill when they get it. That's about the, uh, the, uh, the total as we can see it at the moment. Do, do we have any sense of whether it makes people sicker than the Delta or the previous variants? Well, it's probably more likely to to become uh, ill, if, if, and this was the worry here, as you rightly say, the worry is what about the people who've been vaccinated? So far, this seems to be uh, a drop in effectiveness, but the vaccines are still the way to go. It's still going to be your protection. You hang on to that. That's your life jacket, your life belt. But it would probably mean, as I said, we need far more data. There's very few cases in Canada. But it may well be that the, that the, the vaccines will protect you a little bit less than the previous, uh, as anyone protect the previous variants. Uh, but we need more data to come in and uh, to find out what's really happening here. Uh, Dr. Sly, please hang on. We've got to take another break, and we will be back with more on the new Mu variant. And before we go to break, the numbers 416 360 toll free 1 866 740 you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the new Moo variant of COVID-19 and what it means to us. If you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly. And Dr. Sly, I thought that one of the problems of having a newer variant circulating is that it can give rise to even more new mutations, especially when we have, you know, quite a few unvaccinated people around. Yeah, you're right. All, all viruses do mutate to some degree, especially the RNA viruses as opposed to the DNA viruses. And this is an RNA virus, of course. So is, so is rabies and so is influenza for that matter. But the more 
replication that goes on just by chance alone. A mutation is just a probable happening. It's a mistake that happens. And of course, the more text you write in your word processor, the more chances are you're going to make the odd spelling mistake in. That's a really way that mutations work. So yeah, the, 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 uh, the objective is to stop big areas where the mutations are going on. If you'll notice that all the variants have, have appeared in areas where you had a hotbed, a, a raging dumpster fire of spread, and that's where the variants come from. So we've got to take a lot of effort to make sure the rest of the world, particularly those that haven't seen more than 1% or 2% of the country vaccinated yet, those are the places we've got to concentrate on. The World Health has been banging that uh, desk for a long time, saying this one will continue as long as the rich companies, rich countries still keeping them the second and the third booster doses and so on and forgetting about the rest of the world. You know, uh, it's comforting that you've basically what I'm taking from what you're saying is that, you know, we don't have to worry about this too much. But I remember, I mean, it's been found 168 times in the province, mostly here in the GTA uh, since June 23rd. But, you know, I remember with the Delta variant that, uh, you know, at first it was, uh, you know, a trickle of cases and look what we have now. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't say that we don't have to worry about it. I say we have, people have to keep a very careful look at it and a watch on it and, and seeing where it's going because of the reasons that you're, you're hinting at, and that's exactly right as well. Uh, so far, though, it seems not to be able to spread more effectively, and it looks like uh, the people who are receiving this, as, of course, the other viruses at the moment, are those people who don't have any protection. So, it, again, it's, it's hunting, as all the viruses do, for the unvaccinated, if you want to sort of paint a romantic picture on it. Uh, so, so what we're really worried about is a variant that does both of those things, that it spreads more effectively from person A to person B, and it becomes more dangerous. Once it does both of those things, then we really get uh, worried. But so far, this thing doesn't seem to be uh, ticking both of those boxes, only the fact that if you get it, you, you, uh, at least you're not going to be as protected with the vaccine as you would have done with the, even the Delta. Well, thank you. That's good news. Thank you so much for updating us on that, Dr. Timothy Sly. Well, the story can change week by week, as you know, David, David on this particular subject. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now I would like to welcome a special guest, and that is Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole. And uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for making the time uh, at this stage of the campaign. Hello. Hi, Libby. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to focus on the concerns of the older demographic. And so to start, Please give us the 30-second elevator pitch about why your party has the best offering for older Canadians. Well, thanks. We're the only party that put out a detailed plan for our future. We call it Canada's Recovery Plan, Securing Our Future, and that includes for seniors. The biggest, the biggest issue facing our country right now is the cost of living crisis. And if you're a senior on a fixed income, that squeezes you harder than anyone else. So we've seen groceries go up, the cost of of gas, of, of everyday items skyrocketing. And Mr. Trudeau in this election said, oh, he doesn't worry about monetary policy because it doesn't impact families. Well, if inflation is creeping up as it is to record highs, that does impact people. So we have a number of programs to get uh, give Canadians a break. We're going to double the Canada workers' benefit for some of the people transitioning 
into retirement. We're going to double that so that they're taking more home. We're going to give a GST holiday in December, give everyone a bit of a break and help bricks and more retailers in the process because it will be for in-person purchases. We've got some policies to get uh, bills down for wireless and, and for internet using more competition. Uh, we're going to go after some of the some of the anti-competitive practices we've seen in grocery and other things uh, to get prices down there as well. And then we've got innovative programs like the Dine and Discover, little little breaks that will give people uh, some more money in their pocket and will help the hard-hit travel, hard-hit restaurant sector. So we put together a very comprehensive to give seniors, to give Canadians a break, Libby. Mr. O'Toole, um Let's go to long-term care. We've seen the carnage. We've seen very different outcomes and responses from province to province, which is why stakeholders, advocates are saying need national standards, uh, but you say that you don't want to impose national standards. Uh, How can you still say that the provinces know best? I mean, even between the first and second wave, some did some things to mitigate the outcome. Others did not. Well, I'm glad you raised this because in the first wave of the pandemic, um, I was the first politician to call for the use of the military in our long-term care to give extra support to deal with a crisis where we saw the gaps exposed. This is the difference between having a prime minister like Mr. Trudeau, who reads what is given to him, or someone like me, who serves in the military that's used to adapting. And what we need to do is fill the gaps that were exposed in long-term care, uh, especially in Ontario and Quebec. But this is an issue across the country. And we're putting $3 billion specifically into uh, infrastructure improvements in long-term care facilities that the provinces can draw on. That's in addition, Libby, to our record 10-year investment of almost $60 in our public health care system. We want to influx a lot of resources into our system to fix the gaps and to secure our public health care system. The issue about Ottawa controlling things or, or tying things is, is actually not how our system works. We need to build partnerships again in Canada, not have uh, Ottawa fighting various premiers like we've seen with Mr. Trudeau. We need to work together. We need to fill the gaps in long-term care especially, and we're putting the funds and the impetus to do this. And Ottawa can say whatever it wants. It's the provinces that are the lead here. So we're going to give them the tools to make the, the fixes needed. Right. But if there are no earmarks and, and uh, you don't hold them to it uh, in terms of getting the money, it just doesn't seem to happen. I, I, I don't agree. I think every province has identified this as a critical gap area, Libby. Our, our country wasn't ready for a pandemic like this. And in fact, in the months before the pandemic, Mr. Trudeau shut down our pandemic warning system, for goodness sake. So the federal government did a terrible job at the beginning with the border, with, with PPE masks. They were giving them away to China, for goodness sake, at a time where we should have been getting ready, stockpiling up here. So the federal government has to do what it does well and do it better. And then the provinces, they all want to improve their systems. So what we're going to do is be a funding partner, as I said, with that $3 billion fund to improve the infrastructure, the physical long-term care homes. Then we're also going to give a lot more predictable long-term funding for our healthcare system to allow provinces to come up with multi-year plans to fix this. And we will partner with them. We will, uh, we will help wherever we can. But Ottawa does not administer the healthcare system, and that's just a simple reality. So I think Mr. Trudeau plays a lot of politics here, but 
as we've seen, he never delivers on anything from uh, budget commitments to, to boil water advisories. He always fails. Uh, speaking of that historic investment of $60 billion in health care, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office, only $3.6 billion is coming in the first five years. Uh, that's less than the Liberals. And, uh, you know, a lot of seniors can't wait that long to get a better health care system. Well, let me correct you there. It's $3 billion more in the short term than the Liberals. What, what we have offered, and some people um, have forgotten the way we're proposing it, Libby, we're giving a minimum of a 6% increase per year to our system. That allows the provinces to plan, to know that they're going to have a steadily increasing amount of money. And of course, over 10 years, that compounding <clears throat> does add up. So there's a lot more longer term, but that's $3 billion more on top of what Mr. Trudeau has already pledged for the system. We're giving more and doing it predictable. So when Mr. Trudeau says that he's going to hire more doctors, he's misleading people. The federal government does not hire doctors. The provinces do. And they, with med school, they need probably a five to seven year timeline to, to, to make those additions to the healthcare system. Same with nurses, They're the provincial collective agreement. What we're giving is locked in, raising money. And if we can have a stronger economic performance, if we can get the economy back going again, 6% will be, will be a minimum. We hope to make it, make it more. But what provinces need is certainty and predictability. They don't need Ottawa uh, cutting or changing their approach, which we've seen with Mr. Trudeau. Beyond the money, our spend is among the highest of the OECD uh, countries, and, and the outcomes are among the lowest. So doesn't that show that we just can't leave everything to the provinces? Well, you know, this is something that uh, I think is a bit of a, a false argument. And what your listeners really need to know is what can the federal government do? It can give federal funds in a long-term predictable fashion for the provinces. The federal government is actually in charge of health care for Indigenous Canadians and for the military and veterans. The federal government hasn't been doing a good job in that regard. If we look at the calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, Indigenous health care outcomes have, have not been going up under Mr. Trudeau. The first question I asked as opposition leader was on Indigenous health care. So what the federal government needs to do is do its area of jurisdiction well, and then partner with the provinces wherever possible, because they are actually in charge of delivering on the services. And let's work collaboratively to see all boats going up, and let's address the gaps in long-term care. Let's give relief to the frontline nurses and doctors who are at burnout. This will be my approach, a federalism of partnership, as opposed to Mr. Trudeau using the provinces and playing them off one another. The Liberals announced their version of a mandatory vaccine policy for federally regulated workers and travelers. If you're elected, will you keep it or get rid of it? Well, what I've announced is a policy that would be uh, encouraging and pushing and promoting vaccines. But for a small number that may not be, be vaccinated, um, using daily rapid testing with respect to the federal civil service. And what's interesting, Libby, Mr. Trudeau tried to use this question when he launched the election. He tried to use this to divide people and wedge me. A few days later, it came out that that was the official position of the civil service. The human resources lead came out with a policy that was exactly what I just described to you. So Mr. Trudeau then hid that policy, removed it from the website because he's trying to divide people on a question of public health. I would never do that. Vaccines are so critical. It's why my wife and I 
videoed our vaccination process and we both had COVID. So we all have to play a role to get our vaccination levels up, to, to use all the tools, including rapid testing, masks, everything we can do to fight the spread of COVID, which is why, Libby, we should not be in an election. This election was called by Mr. Trudeau so for just, his political interests only. So no mandatory vaccine policy? No, we're going to promote. We've got a plan to get vaccines up to 90%. But this is a pub- personal health decision. And we. I often say you have to educate and inform, not coerce and force, especially because some uh, minority communities, some people that have had bad uh, interactions with our public health system, uh, Indigenous Canadians, for example, have more hesitancy because of that. We're not going to overcome that with, with coercion and dividing people and creating an us versus them. We're trying to take a very responsible but respectful approach to get vaccines up, but to use the other tools to keep uh, non-vaccinated people safe and not part of any spread. Uh we're woefully running out of time. Uh, you have a new caregiver benefit, but it's focused on people who live with a parent. Uh, the numbers show that most caregivers don't live with the person they're taking care of and they have to spend money out of pocket. Uh, do you have any plans to help those people? Well, this is a plan to encourage, where possible, the, the, the families to be caregivers for an aged parent themselves. This will actually be a huge benefit for many families that are already doing it. It will also provide a little relief on our long-term care systems as we're expanding and and improving and filling the gaps there. And I think there's a lot of families that already do this. You know, we talk about the in-law suite uh, in the home where uh, the the family member is there to not only help with the family, but also to allow their, their children to take care of an aged parent. We're going to have a benefit that actually gives families a little assistance to do that because it's good for the the senior. It's also good for our system to be able to incentivize and, and help people that are causing less uh, demand on a system like long-term care that's already in a, in a strained position. So I think it's smart policy and it's one more thing that we're doing to try and help family and trying to help seniors. Okay, well, uh, we are way over time now. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, thank you very much, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Libby, and it'd be great to have a PM from the GTA, I think. Okay, thank you very much. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.